Good evening, and I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, this is the first of several events that will go on in this academic year celebrating the 20th anniversary of Judaic Studies program. Uh, it is wonderful that it has been here for so long and it has flourished. Uh, the community at large has supported it, as have uh, faculty over the last 20 years, and certainly a, a very strong group of faculty right now. Uh, the, the program has had wonderful support from donors from outside the university, and in fact it is their uh, great generosity that allows us every year to have these talks and these events, uh, including this one today. And I'm going to turn the microphone over to, um, to Dr. Schmidt, who's going to introduce the speaker, speaker Dr. Dr. Boyarin. Thank you so much, Dean Lee. Uh, we are grateful for your support of Judaic Studies and for your encouragement. Um, 20 years. It's so thrilling to be able to look back on two decades of Judaic Studies at UT. Many of you in the audience have been with us from the very beginning. And we thank you so much for your enthusiasm for the program and for your support in so many ways. It takes a village to nurture Judaic Studies at UT, and we have benefited from your generosity throughout the years. I'm very grateful. Our celebration tonight will initiate the next 20 years, a time of growth and expansion, we hope, and we would like you to come along for this journey as well. Our distinguished speaker tonight is Professor Daniel Boyarin, Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Professor of Talmudic Culture at the University of California, Berkeley. We are grateful to our co-sponsors for this event, the Abraham and Rebecca Solomon and Ida Schwartz Distinguished Lecture Fund for Judaic Studies and the UT Departments of English, History, Modern Foreign Languages and Literatures and Religious Studies. Also, my gratitude to my assistant, Ashley Combest, who took care of many of the details for Professor Boyarin's visit. The other day, I was in the elevator when a young man came in. He turned to me and said, thank you for bringing Professor Boyarin to campus. I asked him what he liked about Professor Boyarin. He thought for a moment, and then he blurted out, he is so interesting. Tonight, we are privileged to hear for ourselves. Trained as a scholar of the Talmud at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, where he received his PhD, Professor Boyarin has gained a reputation as a historian of religion, of Judaism, some would say of New Testament, of rhetoric, and of gender studies. Having received all the coveted national fellowships over the years and many prestigious visiting professorships, Professor Boyarin's contribution to the study of religion is cutting edge. His ability to negotiate the borderlines between disparate fields, weaving in and out of disciplines such as literary theory and rabbinics, revisiting psychoanalysis and Judaism in a new key, Grounded in Talmudic learning, while also innovative, has led to many publications. Among them, Borderlines, the Partition of Judeo-Christianity in 2004, an edited volume with Anne Pellegrini and Daniel Itzkowitz, 
queer theory and the Jewish question in the same year. And last year, the Jewish Gospels, the story of the Jewish Christ. Professor Boyarin's current research focuses on the Gospel of Mark and a different reading of the familiar text. Professor Boyarin's service to his university and to the profession over the years has been tremendous, and some of his doctoral students, such as Charlotte von Robert and Nina Caputo, have already established reputations as fine scholars of their own. We are delighted that Professor Boyarin agreed to visit Knoxville. Professor Boyarin's presentation tonight will be on Josephus without Judaism. Please join me in welcoming Daniel Boyarin. Working now, the mic? Good. The Talmud says that a speaker should always praise the host. In this case, I'm going to praise Knoxville, Tennessee. The last time I was here was about 10 years ago. I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the Southeast meeting of the American Academy of Religion, Society of Biblical Literature. I flew in in the evening, and when I woke up in the morning, I went out of my hotel, found somebody who looked like a hotshot graduate student, maybe a young assistant professor, and I said, where's the nearest place I can get a good cappuccino? He said, Durham, North Carolina. <laughs> Without missing a beat. That's not the praise. The praise is that I had excellent coffee this morning. So clearly, uh, Knoxville is on the way. <laughs> There's a lot more to praise here. Um, I've been here for about 26 hours and been treated so well and uh, by so many people here. And um, it's, uh, it's a lovely place to be. Um, Switching gears, another topos. I thought I was going to speak about Josephus, but by as of about three weeks ago, I had about 140 pages on Josephus. Couldn't figure out how to cut it down into one lecture. So I chose a different piece of the same research to uh, deliver this, this evening. It's called Imagining No Judaism. And... Um, um, the overall argument is the overall argument of the book is that Judaism is not a native concept for Jews. Judaism is not a native concept for Jews, and I hope that in the course of my lecture you will come to understand that perhaps somewhat surprising statement. In his classic work, the Elementary Forms of the Religious Life, Emile Durkheim renders the following opinion. Quote, The really religious beliefs are always common to a determined group, which makes profession of adhering to them and of practicing the rites connected with them. <clears throat> they are not merely received individually by all the members of this group. They are something belonging to the group, and they make its unity. The individuals which compose it feel themselves united to each other 
by the simple fact that they have a common faith. A society whose members are united by the fact that they think in the same way in regard to the sacred world and its relations with the profane world, and by the fact that they translate these common ideas in common practices, is what is called a church. In all history, we do not find a single religion without a church. Sometimes the church is strictly national, sometimes it passes the frontiers, sometimes it embraces an entire people, Rome, Athens, the Hebrews. Sometimes it embraces only a part of them, the Christian societies since the advent of Protestantism. Sometimes it is directed by a corps of priests, sometimes it is almost completely devoid of any official directing body. But wherever we observe the religious life, we find that it has a definite group as its foundation." End quote. Now Durkheim had carefully dismantled all previous and indeed nearly all subsequent definitions of religion as a universal by showing that rendering these definitions dependent on theism or on the recognition of the supernatural makes the definition exclusive of certain traditions. We don't want a definition of religion that leaves out Mahayana Buddhism, for one thing. He did this precisely in order to dis distance any definition of religion from a particular Christianizing model. So far, so good. But in the definition that we have just seen, he comes a cropper nonetheless, effectively defining religion willy-nilly as Christianity. I think the word church might be a kind of a, uh, a bit of a, a, a clue there. Let me unpack this claim a bit. First of all, he defines religion in terms of beliefs and practices, but with the pride of place given to beliefs. Quote, the individuals which compose it feel themselves united to each other by the simple fact that they have a common faith. Unquote. One of the, one of the uh, most, the greatest misnomers with respect to Judaism is that it is a faith. Um, there's a, um, there, is a, there is a fellowship for graduate students at Berkeley that is earmarked for students of the Jewish faith. Right? All Jew stu Jewish students who apply tick off that they would like that fellowship, and quite legitimately, because being of the Jewish faith actually has nothing to do with faith. Some Jews may have faith, most Jews don't, and um, of the Jewish faith is simply a code word for being Jewish. Right? So it, it was, we see how the, the, a, Christian, a Christian way of thinking about identity is simply transferred to, to other folks. Um, and, and that's what's happening here as well. Secondly, he translates his definition into a definition of a church as a group of people united precisely by their ideas about the sacred and their practices. He seeks to incorporate a group called the Hebrews under this rubric by suggesting that sometimes a people constitutes a church. Ironically enough, for this scion of a great rabbinic family, which Durkheim was, every single one of these definitions is a product of Christianity and Christianity alone, as I hope to sketch in here. And indeed, Durkheim's very def definition of the religion of the so-called Hebrews as a church is drawn from Christian renditions of Jewry, not from Jewish ones. 
The definition of religion is offered by Durkheim, and I would suggest that there is no better. In other words, I'm not singling out Durkheim because I think he, he's bad. I'm singling out Durkheim because he think he did the very best that can be done, and it still fails. Does not at all fit the situation of the Jews. Let us recall that he defined religion as always being predicated on there being a church, that is, a community defined as united by a set of beliefs and practices. To repeat his key sentence, quote, the individuals which compose it feel themselves united to each other by the simple fact that they have a common faith. A society whose members are united by the fact that they think in the same way in regard to the sacred world and its relations with the profane world, and by the fact that they translate these common ideas and common practices is what is called a church. In all history, we do not find a single religion without a church, end quote again. For Durkheim, the Jews constituted such a church, albeit one that was coterminous with the borders of the society. He is simply wrong. There never was, at least not until modernity, a Jewish church at all. Jews have never all thought the same way in regard to the sacred world and its relations with the profane world, even ideally. On the one hand, as we shall see, ancient Jews did not have a turn to mark off their religion, still less their faith, as a separate sphere of their social lives, separate from politics, law, kinship, and all of the other practices that make up a Jewish polity. On the other hand, there were groups of Jews, namely the early followers of Jesus, as well as surely others who held beliefs quite different from those of many other Jews as to the sacred world and its relations with the profane world, and yet were still defined clearly by themselves and others as Jews. If for Durkheim, Protestantism and Catholicism define separate churches within singly national groups, then what shall we do with the followers of Jesus or the Dead Sea sect that rejected the temple in Jerusalem? or others and others. One would have to concede that there are indeed many Judaisms in antiquity, as Jacob Neusner would have it. I propose rather that we simply conclude that the notion of Judaism is anachronistic historically and useless and misleading analytically and ought to be abandoned in speaking of the past. Where Durkheim and everyone else fails to account for universal religion, he nonetheless pr produces a fine description of the Christian church as it emerges from late antiquity into the early Middle Ages. All of Durkheim's descriptions are accurate, I suggest, just that they are an accurate description of the one religion, or perhaps better put, the very prototype religion in human history, to wit, Christianity. Precisely that human community which defines itself, which unites itself, at least in principle, around a set of ideas. So the next section is Judaismus is not Judaism. Whatever the Jews were in antiquity, I'm certain that they were not a religion in the Durkheimian sense offered above. That is a church that encompassed an entire people. Seth Schwartz seems to me exactly correct in his claim <clears throat> that no modern term of art ethnic group, nation, culture, certainly not race, is any less anachronistic or misleading than religion itself. So we shall have to deal in description without quite naming as a category what it is that we are describing. Right? In general, I, th I think 
um, the less we deal in abstractions, the better our scholarship will be. In general, I remain quite firmly committed to the theoretical notion that creating categories for the analysis of human practices that were not recognized within the human groups that we are analyzing is a serious mistake. I hope my reasons for this commitment will become clearer as I go here. In pre-Christian antiquity, the term Judaismus appears essentially in only one literary context. Right? There are exactly six instances of the word Judaismus before Christianity comes on the scene. Namely, the accounts of the resistance of the Maccabees to Hellenismus, right? Greekishness. Expanding implicitly but significantly on an argument that has been made by earlier scholars, Stephen Mason has recently demonstrated beyond a shadow of this writer's doubt that the word Judaismus appears only in this particular literary and historical context because it precisely fits that context and perhaps no other in Jewish antiquity. It fits, moreover, into a paradigm of other terms formed the same way in Greek as a verbal noun from a particular kind of verb, neither of which has the slightest bit to do with the naming of a religion, signifying rather political loyalty and fealty to ancient ethnic practices. Right? To mention Josephus, uh, after all, um, he never refers to the Jewish religion. He never refers to Judaismus, doesn't use the word Judaism even once. What he talks is about ta patria ethe or ta patria nomoi, namely the, 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 the practices, the customs of the ancestors or the laws of the ancestors. Judaismus means then loyalty to the Jewish cause and the Jewish ways of life. Let me put some flesh on the skeleton of this argument. If we have learned one thing from structural linguistics, it is that the terms within a lexicon acquire meaning precisely from the paradigms that they are in. That is, in this case, the other terms within a semantic field to which they are opposed as not them. Right? So word derives meaning from what it is not. Seen from this perspective, it is absolutely clear that Judaismus at this stage of its history belongs to a paradigm that includes such other words as medismos, acting like a Persian, right, like a Median, Hellenismos, which is acting like a Greek, Laconismos, acting like a Spartan, and finally, Atesismos, acting like an Athenian. Semantically, whatever we, we wish to call these, they are manifestly not the names of religions, but have to do with political loyalties, ancestral practices, some of which may fit into our notions of religion, probably most not. Right? So laconismos involves being a warrior. Right? It involves certain kind of clothes that you wear, a certain way you do your hair up, which have nothing to do with worship, but are the classic uh, ancient practices of Spartans. Common language, right? so laconismos is also speaking laconically, as it were. Right? Uh, uh, Spartans were famous for um, being uh, men of few words. That's where our word laconic comes from. 
dress, and whatever else. No one, I think, would seriously entertain naming Spartanism or Athenianism, Athenianism religions. Secondly, and this is also a crucial point that Mason has made as well, these are not the names of institutions or entities to, <coughs> to which one might adhere, but rather verbal nouns that indicate the very adhering itself. Atticism is not something one might be a member of, but something that one does. Putting this another way, these nouns in ismos, in ancient Greek, are not abstract nouns at all, but something like gerunds, forms from verbs in itso. These usages, moreover, go back to classical models in Greek, being well established in such writers as Thucydides and Xenophon, among others. There is no reason whatever to regard ancient Judaismus as other than a member of this semantic and morphological paradigm, nothing more or less. Excuse me. The rarity of its usage within Jewish writing is easily applicable by the fact, explicable by the fact that it is not a general term for an abstract such as Judaism, thus explaining its total absence from writers such as Josephus and Philo, and forsaking all others as well. This interpretation fits well in every instance within the sole context of its ancient provenance in the books of Maccabees. While I agree with Mason that in none of these instances is it necessary to see Judaism, the system, the institution, I think he oversteps the mark by interpreting always as Judaizing, which he defines as a newly coined countermeasure against Hellenismus. I don't believe with Mason that we are dealing always with a bringing back of those who have gone over to foreign ways, a Judaizing or Judaization, but, uh, but fortunately, Judaizing is not the only alternative to interpreting Judaismus as the name of religion. In short, I would translate Judaismus as, to invent another word, Jewing, right? Acting like a Jew, being loyal to the Jewish cause, but not the name of either a faith or a community defined by faith or an abstraction of any of any kind. Furthermore, this interpretation explains well the usage of Judaismus in the Pauline epistles as well. When the apostle says that formerly he was very advanced in Judaismus, he is surely not referring to an abstract category or an institution, but the practice of Jewish ways of loyalty to the traditional learning and mores of the Jews, described by his contemporary Josephus as the ancestral traditions of the Judaioi, ta patria ton Judaion. Now again, one might be tempted simply to gloss the Josephan term as well as the Jewish religion, were it not for the fact that this is exactly the usage that we find in Thucydides describing the Plataeans Medizing, namely that they are accused of forsaking their ancestral traditions. Parabinontes ta patria. Again, ta patria. That is, 
that this is the meaning in Paul as well is shown by Mason's observation that Paul denounces Peter because though Peter allegedly lives as a foreigner and not as a Judean, ethnikos kai uchi judaikos, right? He lives ethnikos, that's an adverb, right? In other words, he lives Gentilish and not Judaish. Nonetheless, you compel the foreigners to Judaize, right? To ethne anan Right? So even though you live Gentilish and not Judaish, you compel the ethne, the Gentiles, to Judaize. In other words, to act like Jews. A cultural movement that Paul connects tightly with circumcision and observance of Judean law. Since ethnicizing is surely not observing a religion, right? Ethnikos, it doesn't mean observing a religion. Neither is Judaizing here. And then certainly also not the noun derived quite regularly from this word, verb, Judaismus. Judaismus, it may be concluded, is not the name for the Jewish religion in any ancient Jewish writer at all, including Paul. The next section is called Ignatius, or Judaismus Converted. Even on the most elementary structuralist notions of language, and even without these, it will be seen that the invention of Christianismus as the binary opposite of Judaismus completely re-signifies the latter term as well. The point is not, of course, that there was no, relig that there was no religion in Judaismus, but rather that Judaismus included much that we would not call religion or rather, as Elizabeth Castelli has well phrased it, from the vantage point of a post-enlightenment society that understands the separation of the political and the religious as an ideal to be protected, the Roman imperial situation requires careful attention to the myriad ways in which Roman religion might, it could be defensively argued, not quite exist. This is still Castelli. That is, insofar as practices that could conventionally be called religious intersected so thoroughly with political institutions, social structures, familial commitments, and the recognition of the self in society, there is very little reason in ancient Roman society that would not, as a consequence, qualify as religious. Right? So if religion is everywhere, then it means it's nowhere. In the process of entering into a new paradigm, Judaismus itself, and later even Hellenismus too, because in later Christian writers, Hellenismos is the term that means paganism, right? But that's not till the, like the, you know, till, till almost modern times, like the fourth century or so. <laughs> right? So Judaismus was re-signified from the name of a political, ethnic, religious practice to the name of a religion, too poor. Francis Young has made the point quite plain. Hellenismus, Judaismus, and Romanitas were originally terms referring to culture. Only in response to Christianity did paganism or Judaism, or for that matter at a later date Hinduism, become a belief system as distinct from a whole culture. Until the 19th century, Hindu meant somebody from India. That's all it meant didn't matter what gods you worshipped, it didn't matter 
uh, whether you were what we would call a Jain or a Hindu, in our term, or a Sikh. Hindu just meant that you were from India. Only when the British came and went around and started insisting that people should name what religion they belonged to, right? So, so two things happened. First of all, the Indians decided, well, we need a word for religion. They took the old word dharma, right, which, which doesn't mean religion, and they said, okay, now we've got a word for religion, right? And then what religion? Well, we're Hindus. And so Hinduism was born sometime in the 19th century, uh, just about the time that, uh, you know, that Jews started talking about Judaism, right? But, and this is a, a point that I want to emphasize and re-emphasize, this resignification took place within Christian language, not that of the Jews themselves. Ignatius, the late first century bishop of Antioch, was one of the earliest agents of the conversion of Judaismus from its earlier meaning of loyalty to the Jewish politeia and its traditional ways of life to the name of a religion that is not Christianismus. The bishop and future martyred saint inveighed mightily against those who blurred the boundaries between Jew and Christian. His very inveighings, however, are indicative of the ideological work that he is performing, work that in the fullness of time led to the making of both Christianity and Judaism. The question of names and naming is central to the Ignatian enterprise. Near the very beginning of his letter to the Ephesians, in a passage the significance of which has only been partly realized in my view, Ignatius writes, Having received in God your much-loved name, which you possess by a just nature according to faith and love in Christ Jesus, our Savior, being imitators of God, enkindled by the blood of God, you accomplished perfectly the task suited to you. Although this interpretation has been spurned by most commentators and scholars of Ignatius, I would make a cornerstone of my construction to read this as a reference to the name Christians. He is saying you deserve to be called Christians. It was, after all, in Ignatius's Antioch that, as we are informed by the book of Acts, the people were first called by that name, Christians. Ignatius is complimenting the church in Ephesus as being worthy indeed to be called by the name of Christ owing to their merits. They may call themselves Christians. Indeed, as Walter Schertl points out in Magnesians 10.1, another of Ignatius' letters, Ignatius writes, Therefore let us become his disciples and learn to live according to Christianismus. For one who is called by any name other than this is not of God. Even more to the point, however, is Magnesians 4.1. It is right then not only to be called Christians, but to be Christians. Ignatius tells the Ephesians then that they are not just called Christians, but are indeed Christians, by nature, fuse, as it were. Ignatius goes on in verse 2 to write, For hearing that I was put in bonds from Syria for the common name and hope, hoping by your prayer to attain to fighting with beasts in Rome, that by attaining I may be able to be a disciple, you hastened to see me." Quote. Once again, the interpretative tradition seems to have missed an attractively specific interpretation of name here, 
that links it to the name in the previous verse. It is not so much I opine the name of Christ that is referred to here as the name of Christian, which equals disciple. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The common hope is Jesus Christ, but the common name is Christian. I would suggest that Ignatius represents here the martyrological theme of the centrality of martyrdom in establishing the name Christian as the legitimate and true name of the disciple. This in accord with the practice whereby Christianos Sum, or its Greek equivalent, Christianos Amy, were the last words of the martyr, the name for which she died. Right? And the discipleship, at least in Ignatius's thought, is following Christ into martyrdom. Right? That is what, what, what makes a Christian. Similarly, in the next passage, Ignatius explicitly connects martyrdom with the name. I do not command you as being someone, for even though I have been bound in the name, I have not yet been perfected in Jesus Christ. The name in which Ignatius has been bound, i.e. imprisoned and sent to Rome for martyrdom, is the name Christianus. The nexus between having the right to that name and martyrdom, or between martyrdom and identity, and the nexus between them and separation from Judaism is also clear. In opening his letters with this declaration, I think Ignatius is declaring one of his major themes for the corpus entire, the establishment of a new Christian identity distinguished and distinguishable from Judaism. If this is seen as a highly marked moment in his texts, then one can follow this as a dominant theme throughout his letters. This issue is most directly thematized, however, in Ignatius' letter to the Magnesians, which I've quoted a few times. He exhorts, Be not deceived by erroneous opinions, nor by old fables which are useless. For if we continue to live until now according to Judaism, we confess that we have not received grace. Now, note, Paul never writes like that. What Paul would say, if we continue to live until now according to the law, we have not received grace, right? Ignatius is the first who uses Judaism in that sense. Judaismus consists for Ignatius of erroneous opinions and old fables. But what precisely does he mean? Let us go back to the beginning of the letter. Once more, Ignatius makes a reference to the name for having been deemed worthy of a most godly name in the bonds which I bear, I sing the churches. Here it is almost certain that only the name Christian will fit the context. This thought about the name is continued explicitly in Ignatius' famous statement, it is right then not only to be called Christians, but to be Christians. On my reading, it is the establishment of that name, giving it definition, defining, policing the boundaries that separate the name of one entity from the name of another, namely Christianity from Judaism. Although I must say that that's, that sentence that I just quoted about defining, policing the boundaries that separate the name of one entity from the name of another originally referred to the border between Poland and Czechoslovakia. <laughs> that provides a major thematic focus for the letter as a whole. Near the end of the letter to the Magnesians, Ignatius writes, I write these things, my beloved, not because I know that some of you are so disposed, but as one less than you, I wish to forewarn you. 
I would not treat this as mere flattery rhetoric, implying that some of them were so disposed, and Ignatius is either being ingratiating or purposely idealizing. That's the way I would not read it. I would suggest that we might take it literally as an indication that Ignatius knows well that what he is doing is constructing borders, delimiting what will be understood as legitimate Christianity, the proper name, and what will be excluded as Judaismus, as Judaism, rather than confronting a real danger. Right? The project is discursive, and it's to produce Christianismus as a fully defined separate entity. Uh, Ignatius did not really succeed. It took another 300 years and uh, the Council of Nicaea to, to, to complete that job. As a sort of thought experiment, at any rate, I would like to take seriously the possibility that the heterodox ideas anathematized by Ignatius were indeed, in some important sense, Judaismus, i.e. that the folks who held them might well have thought of themselves as Judaioi. At the same time, of course, that they were also Christians, perhaps for them avant lettre. The issue joined by Ignatius then is the making of the Christian name as something distinct and different, an opposed place to Judaism, defining and policing the boundaries, keeping contraband out of the newly invented Christianismos. In other words, what, what, you, what Ignatius is about is making the sentence, I am Jewish and I am Christian, impossible. Right? That's what he's trying to do. He failed to the extent that when the cardinal, Cardinal Lustiger, died about five years ago and was buried in Notre Dame in Paris, he asked that his plaque on the wall there read, born a Jew, I died a Jew, a Catholic by faith. Right? And his Orthodox Jewish nephew said Kaddish at his funeral. Right? So uh, uh, that's the extent to which uh, Ignatius failed in his project, and uh, not only Ignatius, but um, we, used to have, we used to have a joke. Um, we used to say, why does the uh, chief rabbi of Paris have to be a Sephardic Jew? And the answer is because the cardinal is Ashkenazic. <laughs> and you know, he was fifth in line for Pope the last time around when, when, uh, when Benedict was uh, elected, right? You know, uh, they were taking odds on the Roman, you know, the Roman, in Roman bookshops, and he was like 11 to 1. So, um, Judaismus so far for Ignatius does not seem to be what it means in other writers of and before his time, namely false views and misguided practice, or insisting especially on the ritual requirements of that system. Ignatius troubles to let us know that this is not the case, as we learn from a famous and powerful rhetorical paradox in his letter to the Philadelphians. But if anyone, listen to this text, it's amazing, but if anyone expounds Judaism to you, do not listen to him. For it is better to hear Christianity from a man who is circumcised than Judaism from a man uncircumcised. Both of them, if they do not speak of Jesus Christ, are to me tombstones and graves of the dead on which nothing but the names of men is written. 
After considering various options that have been offered for the interpretation of this surprising passage, Schertl arrives at what seems to me the most compelling interpretation. Perhaps it was the expounding exegetical expertise that was the problem, and not the Judaism observance. I would go further than Schittel by making one more seemingly logical exegetical step, namely to assume that for Ignatius, Judaismus is a matter of expounding, just as Christianismus is. In Ignatius, I suggest, Judaismus no longer means observance, per se, except insofar as expounding itself is an observance. In other words, for him, Judaism and Christianity have been transformed into two doxas, two systems of belief, two theological positions, a wrong one, heterodoxia, and a right one, orthodoxia. A wrong interpretation of the legacy of the prophets and a right one. The right one is that which is taught by the prophets inspired by his grace and called Christianity, as it is that revealed through Jesus Christ, his son, who is his word. The wrong one is then a reading of Hebrew scripture that does not mention Christ. Here we are coming closer to something like Durkheim's religion. The point may in fact be even more radical, namely that Judaismus is comprised by even the study of the prophets or any scripture at all. The words quoted certainly seem to mean that Christianismus consists of speaking of Jesus Christ, namely the gospel. Now, there were no written gospels when Ignatius is writing. So he's talking about an oral tradition, while Judaismus is devoting oneself to the study of scripture. Although, to be sure, in chapter 9 of Magnesians, Ignatius mentions one aspect of practice, namely the abandonment of the Sabbath for the Lord's day, assuming that the plausible translation Lord's Day, namely Sunday, for Kuriake is correct. Nevertheless, Schertl seems correct in asserting that it was too much attention to biblical texts and not practicing of the law that was disturbing to the good martyred bishop. That is a scripturally based Christianity versus an exclusively apostolic faith. A scripturally based Christianity he calls Judaism. Disciples of Jesus Christ are only teacher. Ignatius explicitly links those who have not abandoned the Sabbath for the Lord's day as those, as those who deny Christ's death as well, a point that will take on greater significance below. For Ignatius, seemingly, Judaismus and Christianismus are both versions of what we would call Christianity. Since his opponents are those who say, right, the, the ones who are practicing Judaismus say, if I do not find it in the archives, which means the Old Testament, I do not believe it to be in the gospel. Right? So these are folks who do think that the gospel is important, not what we would in everyday usage refer to as Jews, but, as, but Christians, but they insist that everything in the gospel must be found in the Old Testament. Ignatius disagrees. Ignatius' antagonists, real or imagined, are not actually what we today would call Jews, since gospel seems to, to be a relevant and important concept for them, but Christians, even uncircumcised ones, who preach some heterodox attachment to Christ, from his point of view, 
or even merely an insistence that everything in Christianity be anchored in scriptural, the only scripture that they had, after all, namely the Old Testament. They do not put Christ first, and their, Christ first, but they put the book first, the Torah, the scripture. And therefore they are preaching Judaismus and they are tombstones. What is this Judaismus and how does it define Christianismus? A closer reading of the passage will help answer this question. I exhort you to do nothing from partisanship, but in accordance with Christ's teaching. For I heard some say, if I do not find it in the archives, I do not believe it to be in the gospel. And then I said, it is written. They answered me, that is just the question. But for me, the archives are Jesus Christ. The inviolable archives are his cross and death and his resurrection and faith through him, in which through your prayers I want to be justified. Right? It's not written in the Gospels. It's the life and death of Jesus Christ, the cross, the resurrection, and faith. That is, for him, the Testament. If it is not in the archives, the Old Testament, as it were, then it is not to believe, be believed as gospel. That's what the others say. The group in Philadelphia to which the future martyr is objecting so strongly would be on this reading followers of Jesus who insist that the gospel contain, can only contain scriptural truths. And this was acceptable to the Philadelphian congregation with whom they were in communion. If we do not make the assumption that there are already, prior to Ignatius, separate entities named Christianity and Judaism, and I suggest that we should not make that assumption, and recognize, too, that the very content of the inchoate gospel is under question at this time, then the claim of these Christians who insist that the gospel must be consistent with the Old Testament begins to make sense. Whose Christianity is it, anyway? That is exactly the question that these Christians put to Ignatius. They answered me, that is just the question. To wit, who are you, Ignatius, to determine what is and is not gospel? For Ignatius, however, for whom non-scriptural kerygma is central, and who sees, as he insists over and over, reliance on scripture as itself Judaismus, even practiced by people who believe in Jesus Christ, the following of Jewish scriptures and not Christianismus, the following of Christ's teaching alone, a reference for a few here, more like Marcion than anything else, the insistence that the only valid archives are the death and resurrection of the Christ. This alone is scripture, the written, right? This is what he says, it is written, but it is not written in words in a book. It's written, if anything, on the hearts of humans, a, which is, after all, a Pauline um, topos also, not paradoxically any words that are written on paper. The opposition between Ignatius and these other Christian Jews has been symbolized by him already as an opposition between those who keep the Sabbath and those who only observe the Lord's Day. Here Ignatius draws it out further via an epistemological contrast between that which is known from Scripture, Judaismus, and that which is known from the very facts of the Lord's death and resurrection. Right? which he calls Christomathia, right? the knowledge of Christ. As we have seen above, for Ignatius, those who observe the Sabbath are implicated as ones who deny the Lord's death as well. Schertl believes that the link between Juda Judaizing and Docetism, 
which is the heresy of maintaining that Christ only appeared to have died on the cross, right? only appeared, that it was just a vision, but he didn't actually die, was invented by Ignatius. Right? That the link between Judaism and Docetism was invented by Ignatius. <clears throat> and moreover, it may well be that the form of the polemic compelled Ignatius to look for a serious theological disagreement where none existed. I have argued elsewhere, however, that Jews who might even have seen in Christ the manifestation—the manifestation of the Word—might yet have balked at seeing Him so carnal that He could actually die. Right? In other words, um, that there were Jews who accepted the gospel, but believed if, if Jesus is indeed divine, then it is uh, impossible to claim that he really died on the cross. Right? So he only appeared to have died on the cross. That which is not found in the archives then is precisely the notion that the word could die. That is exactly that which Ignatius himself claims as the something which the gospel has that is distinctive over against the Old Testament, namely, the coming of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, his passion and resurrection. This suggests strongly that if not precisely the same people, it is the same complex of Christian Jewish ideas, accepting Jesus, accepting the word, but denying actual physical death and resurrection, which Ignatius names as Judaismus the product of overvaluing of scripture against the claims of the gospel, which alone must be first and foremost for those who would have the name Christian, that name for which Ignatius would die. Ignatius produced his Judaismus in order to more fully define and articulate the new identity for the disciples as true bearers of the new name Christianoi. In my view, Judaismus, the religion, is not in itself a pejorative term, but rather was adopted and shifted in meaning precisely so that Christianismus could have an other in its semantic paradigm of what sort of thing it is. Right? In order to be the right religion, since there hadn't been any religions before, right, there has to be a wrong religion. Ignatius is, in some important sense, the inventor of Judaism as a religion, as part and parcel of his invention of Christianity. Oddly enough, the Judaism that he creates has very little to do, it seems, with Jews. This was to remain the fate of this term for quite a while. So the last part of the paper, much briefer than the previous, is called Imagine No Religious Diversity. Daniel Dubuisson has ex explored the effects of what he deems the Western invention of religion. In the first place, he makes the nature of the claim itself clearer. Quote, In asserting that the West invented religion and has continually lived under its influence, we must, of course, understand the West was not the only civilization to ask metaphysical questions, to try to understand the world in which it lived, to conceive of imaginary beings, gods, spirits, demons, ghosts, develop theologies, organize worship, invent cosmologies and mythologies, support beliefs, defend morals and ideals, and imagine other worlds. Right? 
People all over have done those things. But what does it mean to say that the West invented religion? That it made from this collection of attitudes and ideas an autonomous, singular complex profoundly different from everything surrounding it. And it conferred on this distinct complex a kind of destiny or essential anthropological vocation. Humans are held to be religious in the same way that as they are omnivorous. That is, by nature, through the effects of a specific inborn disposition." Quote. To unpack Dubuisson's point, it is in the aggregation of several human activities that are found in many societies into one concept and one named entity or even one institution that we find the genealogy of religion as well as the separation of those activities from other activities that are now called economics, politics, etc. Much like the aggregation that has produced sexuality, this aggregation has a specific history one that can be traced not to a unique moment of origin, perhaps, but to beginnings, nonetheless. The analysis presented in this paper should make very clear that for the West, we must here read Christianity even more than Europe. Ignatius was not a European, not even a Westerner, quite. The clear implication of this is that other human groups, other than Christianity, did not have religion. And moreover, that this recognition will enable us to see and perceive aspects of their culture and its products that are obscured when we impose on them the concept of religion or name their cultures and their parts by names unknown to them, such as Judaism or Hinduism. Dobuisson makes it theoretically crystal clear why any definition of religion will always be Christian. Ventriloquizing the common view, he asks, are there not religions everywhere? And is not the dominant Western religion Christianity as it has been throughout that faith's long history and innumerable, innumerable vicissitudes? But then he goes on to demolish this view. But what do we know of the timeless, disincarnate, quintessential, abstract religion of which every culture, starting with our own, offers a specific hypostasis, ours simply being the most perfect, a little closer to the ideal? What makes up its substratum? In the name of what authority would it be possible to say that, quote, a religion is unconditionally and necessarily this or that, end quote? Or that in essence a religion is this collection of features or permanent characteristics on the basis of its own experience and its own vision of things and of them alone has not the Christian West and it alone being secure in its hegemonic intellectual position conferred in quite arbitrary and artificial fashion an anthropological scientific status and destiny on its own most valued creation, religion." End quote. In, indeed, it is with real-world consequences even in so-called secular societies, perhaps especially in so-called secular societies. In London recently, an Orthodox Jewish school whose charter, a quite legal one under British law, required that students be Jews in order to be accepted, was sued by a family where the father was Jewish but the mother not, and thus not the child either, according to traditional Jewish law. The court deemed that this distinction was discriminatory because it was not based on religion but on ethnicity or race. 
The court ruled that it was an ethnic test because it concerned the status of the boy's mother rather than whether the boy considered himself Jewish and practiced Judaism. What everyone thinks of the desire for there to be schools limited to one group or another, that's a separate critique. I would submit that the very definition offered by the court here is a definition of Christianity which it seeks to impose on Jews in a triumphalist, coercive, colonialist fashion. The court, of course, does not realize this, lacking all historical and genealogical perspective, and assuming simply that religion, as they define it, is a universal and unquestionable category, a matter simply of voluntary self-affiliation and accepting beliefs and practices, and not a matter of belonging, whether natural or naturalized, to a given people. I'm sure that the same court would not say, for instance, that if someone comes to England from Africa, sneaks across the border, and says, well, I feel English and I act like an Englishman, therefore I'm an English citizen, right? they wouldn't say, no, no, that, that person is not English. You have to uh, uh, undergo certain particular um, processes and procedures in order to become an English citizen. right? It is the job of scholars, or at any rate ought to be, to be educating ourselves and each other, however, as to the confusions and injustices occasioned by forcing all folks into procrastinian beds, such as religion. The point of the work that I am doing here is to give weight to observations such as Dubuisson's by backing them up with historical, philological, genealogical research. Otherwise, I fear they are in danger of remaining bootless generalizations in a certain intellectual style. Right? We ought not, a fortiori, be confusing matters with ahistorical analytical categories, not at all. As Paula Fredrickson has remarked with her usual precise pithiness, Jews may be one of the few Western groups now for whom ethnicity and religion closely coincide, but in antiquity that was the least odd thing about them. All I would add is the observation that if, if, if ethnicity and religion completely coincide for all ancient societies, then the very distinction of these as analytical categories is already an act of cultural procrustianism. Right? We can't, if they didn't separate ethnicity and religion, then we shouldn't either. Late ancient Christianity would be the historical force that first produced religion as an autonomous sphere by explicitly, by explicitly separating these modes of social formation one from the other, and thus giving rise quite early on to the acceptation of the word religion, thresce in Greek, religio in later Latin, as a set of beliefs and practices unifying people into a Durkheimian church, a religion in the modern popular and juridical sense. We might well to take this heart to heart ourselves wondering whether our privileging of something called religious liberty is not itself a diminution of liberty overall. And for that matter, whether a center for the study of quote-unquote religious diversity, as has been recently instituted on the Berkeley campus, might itself be a serious imposition of a particular historical term on cultures and groups to which it does not belong, and thus a material and grave reduction and not enhancement of diversity itself. Thank you.
opening lecture. We'll take a few questions and then we have a reception up here. Uh, Jean? Mm. that if we take a look at what popular polls are saying about uh, church attendance, about even belief in God across religions, there is more and more vagueness. Mm. And I wonder if a more suitable term, rather than religion, might be culture, or some people would say tradition, some larger entity that allows for all the varieties that exist within each of us these segments? Well, yes, if I've understood you, I certainly think that in terms of law in America, we'd, we would do well to get rid of the category of religion from our juridical system, right? And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just give an example of what I, what I take to be absurd, right? There are tax exemptions for <clears throat> religions for religious groups in the United States. Religion is defined precisely as a group that has a dogma, has a building that uh, people must undergo uh, procedures to join, that involves a confession of faith. Right? So everybody in the, in the United States who's interested in being defined as religion finds ways to conform to that definition whether or not whether or not that is actually a, a native category or uh, or uh, a suitable one right that's why I say the the, the very ways that we in, in, um, install or um, insert notions of religion religious liberty and freedom of religion into our constitutional law um, in fact, reduce diversity, they don't uh, enhance uh, diversity. So you get groups um, suddenly becoming the church of something or other because that's the only way they can get tax, ex uh, tax exemption, right? And it works. I mean, uh, Scientology now is a ta has tax-exempt uh, status. That's a, uh, a sort of classic I example. Or the way that uh, in a mo somewhat more, um, for me, um, attractive, right? The way that uh, Native American practices have been religionified, right? So that you you now have the you know the church of peyote in order to protect the peyote practices, which are traditional practices and which I think should be protected as such, right? Uh, but not have to turn themselves into little simulacra of churches in order to, to get that uh, protection. Thank you. I have lots of questions. I'll save most of them for later, but I thought it might be interesting for everyone to hear an answer to um, if and when does Judaism start to have something to do with Jews? And, and there's an if there because right. it may not, but I think in the more recent period it, it may. Yeah. Um, about the same time that Hinduism had to do something with being a, uh, the name of a religion. Namely, in, in, uh, sometime in the early modern period, uh, 
middle of the early modern period, 18th century. Um, Laura, uh, Lior Butnitsky has written a very fine book called uh, How Judaism Became a Religion, right? Um, I would, I would uh, if I were titling that book, I would have called it How the Jews Got Religion, right? Uh, uh, in fact, I was planning to call my book that until she came out with her book and kind of, you know, uh, I, I had to come up with a, with a different title. Um, but um, it, it, it's not just a qu question of a slightly more catchy form formulation, right? It's, um, she still is uh, assuming that there is something called Judaism, just that it only becomes a religion. But using the same arguments, I would say that Jews never use the term that Jews have no term for their religion until the 18th century, right? Jews have no term for religion until the 18th century. There is a term, Yahdut, which is used in modern Hebrew to mean Judaism, but in medieval Hebrew just means the status of being a Jew as opposed to not being a Jew, right? So uh, citizenship, more like uh, analogous to citizenship. Yeah. Good question. For you. Uh, so we have Judaismus on the one hand, and then we have Hebraismus uh, also in Germany, especially, uh, and which uh, I always thought refers to the biblical Hebrews. No, I don't think so. I think, I, think, I mean, I could be wrong on this, but I think that um, Hebrew was adopted both in France and in Germany, and, and actually to a certain extent in English as somehow an, a prettier way than calling people Jews. Because uh, 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 being Jew had been so pejorative for so long that they, um, so um, in French even now, uh, you don't say Jew, you say Hebrew, you know, for to name, uh, um, I mean the term Juif exists, but uh, in polite discourse they say, uh, they say in, in fact word perfect, A word processor that some of you may remember. You know, yeah, yeah. You better watch out for, you know, Microsoft Word, the the word processor that ate Chicago, right? Uh, word Perfect used to be very, very um, exuberant about uh, cr uh, political correctness, and if you wrote Jew, it would flag it as a um, a uh, a bad word and ask you to substitute Hebrew. I mean, eventually that got, uh, that got uh, removed from the program. But uh, I think that that instinct that, you know, that calling somebody a Jew is an insult, so. Uh, maybe, we can thank Jerome for a lot, you know. But, uh, you know, it's like when people, people say, he's Jewish, right? Because that's a little nicer than saying he's a Jew. That's uh, yeah. So that's where I think that uh, Hebraismus comes from. That's what I think. Yeah. What you said reminds me of Mordecai Kaplan, the Reconstructionist founder, Judaism, and it seems to be going in that same direction as, as what you're saying. Is that a fair statement to make? You know, it's, it's something that I've been thinking myself in the last few weeks. Um, 
I suppose if that's where the chips fall, that's where the chips fall. You know, uh, um, I've been called an Orthodox Reconstructionist Jew uh, in the past. Uh, so um, there is there yeah it, it, what what I what I what bothers me about about uh, Mordechai Kaplan's way of is that it becomes a kind of trivializing, you know. Um, Pesach is, after all, not the same, quite the same thing as the Fourth of July, right? Uh, and so there's something that he misses out on um, about sacralizing when uh, in in his um, and for me, sacralizing is a universal category. Um, There is not a human culture that I know of where people don't single out objects, spaces, places, people, days, acts as being set apart, as being sacred. Uh, And I don't think we we do quite the same thing with um, American so-called sancta. The fact is that we can move them so easily to Monday uh, you know, to make them, you know, to make a longer uh, week for the for 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 Walmart, you know, longer weekend for Walmart and and Target uh, to have their sales um, uh, is, I think, indicative of of, of of something, right? We just we 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 just don't t- right exactly <laughs> good <laughs> right 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 white sales are really the sacred thing, right? Yeah, well, maybe that's the point, indeed, you know, right, that, that God is mammon. <laughs> we'll take one more question if Um, I think monotheism was invented by Immanuel Kant, uh, myself, right? Um, um, The assertion that we may worship only one God, of course, distinguished ancient Israel from uh, from many other, uh, most other cultures at the time and, and later, but even then, it was not an assertion of the ontological existence of only one God, right? You know, the Bible says things right out there. You may have no other gods before me, right? Not that there aren't any other gods. Uh, and there, there are, uh, there's plenty of evidence that um, ancient Israel imagined that there were other gods, just they were not, you know, weaker or not not as important, not as good. Um, and even within traditional um, within um, the uh, Jewish culture of around the time of Jesus, many Jews believed in a second in a second divinity. Philo even uses the term deutros theos, second god. Right? What distinguished uh, perhaps these 
Judaic beliefs, Jewish beliefs, from others was that the was the statement that there could be no conflict of wills between the two. In other words, that the the, the second God was completely subordinate to the high God, right? To to God properly so called, and uh, there's evidence of Jews worshiping these second gods. Um, um, in ways that are directly analogous to the way that Jesus came to be worshipped um, as well. Uh, the big difference is that, that finally, what, what, I, what, I would, what I would say, the, what finally makes the break um, phenomenologically between historical Judaism and historical Christianity is only the assertion that the Messiah has come. And the worshiping of the actual divine human Messiah on earth, as opposed to Jewish tradition, which assumed that a divine human Messiah will come and will be worshiped. Right? So, the, so the, what we think of as monotheism is very much a product of, really, of German idealistic um, philosophical thinking and not a very useful ca uh, category for thinking about any ancient, uh, any ancient group. Uh, Paula Fredrickson, whom I think visited here very recently, has written quite eloquently on monotheism as a term, as she says, that, that needs to be retired.